now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Thursday. Thanks for tuning in to today's free podcast. Well, free to you because our benevolent overlords here at CRTV are underwriting the cost of producing this each and every day here on iHeart, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can subscribe, write us a positive review, please, if you like us. If you don't, don't lie. Just don't say anything then. Don't forget today's free television show available on, or not free television show. Uh, today's subscription television show available to you if you use my name, promo code DACE at CRTV.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can also email us, steve at stevedace.com. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter, at Steve Dace Show. We normally do buy, sell, or hold, but we're going to do it on the TV side today because we have a special guest coming up uh, on a very important topic in just a matter of moments. But Todd and Aaron, we just wrapped up the show for CRTV. Let's give the audience a a little preview of what's to come, Todd. Well, your introduction is a lesson in why when you are debating formally or informally, you if you're making more statements than you are asking questions, you may very well be doing it wrong, or at the very least, you're making it harder on yourself. If you know how to ask the right questions, don't think of it as really heady, really good questions, the right ones, you've up your game immensely. Definitely. The opening salvo to today's show goes right along, is, is what yes. you're referring to, and you don't want to miss it. Aaron. Yeah. The, the, well, really, the first half of the day uh, of today's show is um, all about asking questions, open-ended questions. Um, that's the first segment, which you'll see if you watch the TV show, sign up at CRTV.com. And then the second segment, um, our, our guest today was Austin Fletcher, a.k.a. Fleckus Talks. And uh, that's kind of a misnomer because he doesn't really do much talking. He just asks a lot of questions and lets the leftists do the talking. And in the process, really exposes them uh, for who they are. And, and Flex is, you know, Austin's end game, whatever it is, we asked him about that today. Uh, as long as he keeps letting these people talk, I think he's doing a yeoman's work and a service to the country in doing so. The question then becomes what's, you know, if, if, if you put these people on television like he does or on YouTube like he does, uh, you know, what's, what's going to fill the void? We know they're bad. What's going to fill the void? And we can get into that more later. Well said. Don't forget today, CRTV.com, promo code DACE to catch today's TV show, but you'll also be able to use that promo code to get access to every show done each and every day and that has ever been done, in fact, and is available on the website at CRTV.com, including the great one, Mark Levin, the one and only Phil Robertson and his new show from Duck Dynasty fame, that and more, promo code DACE, CRTV.com. Don't forget, we have monthly subscription options available as well as a free trial period, so if you cancel during that free trial, you won't be charged anything at all we're joined now on the podcast by dr todd wilson he's got a new book out called mere sexuality obviously a little play there on one of the classics from clive staples lewis mere christianity and uh, todd it's good to have you with us here today on the steve day show podcast courtesy of crtv how are you I'm doing well. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Steve. I'm sure that title is a bit of an homage to C.S. Lewis, right? 
Absolutely, yes, for sure. And and a significance behind it as well, of course. Maybe we'll get into that, but yeah, not not just an homage, uh, and not just to do, do play on his uh, book by that title, but uh, significance and substance behind that choice of titles. Meaning, you're attempting to do an apologetic here on sexuality, such just like uh, Lewis did when it came to Christianity as a whole. Correct. That's exactly right. Yeah, I wanted to say two things. One. Uh, I want to present an apologetic for Christian sexuality to show not only the what I call the rational coherence of the Christian vision, but also its aesthetic beauty, that it's quite compelling uh, when you see the historic vision uh, that Christians have had about what it means to be made in the image of God, male and female. There's something really compelling about that that I think is lost for many people. I also want to say with the title uh, that want to remind the Church today that this is this vision of uh, sexuality that you hear uh, some Christians talking about today is goes back centuries. This is really historic, uh, biblical Christian consensus on human sexuality, going back uh, not just uh, decades, but, but centuries, really, till uh, to the very earliest uh, parts of the Church. When you talk about Christian sexual ethics. You know, we have a saying on our show, some of our favorite oxymorons are local celebrity and moderate oh, yes. and, and, and moderate Arab nation. Those are two of our favorites, okay? okay. To much of this yes. to much of our culture, Christian sexuality would be an oxymoron, right? Um, yes. the, the the legends, that the, the missionary position is was created when um you know, Aborigines and other, you know, underdeveloped culture yeah. saw Christian missionaries having married sex, and that was the only way they did it for procreation, and so that's where the position came from. Uh, that, that we've turned the word Puritan into meaning uh, that, that you're somebody that essentially is a fuddy-duddy out of the handmaid's tale when, you know, the average Puritan family had approximately 38 children, all right, and none of them were immaculately conceived. That Jonathan Edwards, maybe the greatest of all the Puritan, and I'm exaggerating a little bit on 38, but not really by yeah. that much. Um, Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan minister who did sinners in the hand of an angry God, walked around with a, essentially a body encased in a chastity belt. Yet, you know, you can go read the love letters he wrote to his wife, and I think they had like 13 kids. And again, I don't think any of them were immaculately conceived. But but this is really the, the, uh, what the, the cultural stereotype associated with what you're attempting to address, is it not? Yes, it is. Absolutely. And, and I, what I want to say and try to do in the book is to say that the Christian vision of sexuality is not prudish or puritanical, but it's incredibly powerful and compelling if we recover uh, the full kind of theological richness of the Christian vision. One of the things, uh, it, what, is, what is sex in our culture today? It is really, it's just a recreational activity. It's a hobby. Uh, and what are bodies? Um, that we engage in sexual activity with. They're playthings. And so that's such a degradation, not just of sex, Steve, um, and sexual activity that's meant to be a beautiful, powerful thing, but of what it means to be a human person. Our bodies get degraded in the, the culture's vision of sex and sexuality. So I want to say a couple things in the book. Sex is purposeful. It has a purpose to it. It has a design to it. It has a telos to it. It's not just a random recreational activity with body parts. It's powerful, and the, where we see the power of it is it still has the, it still has and is the only thing that has the capacity to bring forth 
an eternal being, a, a, a creature that's going to live on forever. Namely, the procreative power of sex is incredible. I mean, we stop and think about that. It's purposeful. It's powerful. And I want to say, and this has always been a Christian vision, that it's pleasurable. Christians don't want to downplay or deny the pleasurableness of sex. We just want to say that pleasure isn't the purpose of sex. The procreative and the unitive function of sex is really its purpose. Hmm. Uh, so those those things are lost in the culture today. It's really it's not it's not that the culture has a a uh, more robust, more attractive, more compelling vision of sexuality than Christians do, or at least the Christian Church has historically had. It's quite a down downgrading of. Uh, what it means to be a sexually embodied creature. That's the sad thing. That's the tragic thing of our culture today, and why it's so important for Christians to recover our historic commitments to human sexuality. I think one of the things that I'm not sure, Todd, even a lot of Christians understand, but certainly much of the secular or non-Christian culture, therefore, doesn't get either, is the paradoxical tension within Christianity on multiple levels because you're in the world but not of it. So this this notion, you know, if, if you believe in a resurrected Christ, if you've had a conversion experience and God's spirit lives in you, you really represent the kingdom of God on earth. It's here now. Yeah. On the other hand, it's not yet totally fulfilled at the exact same time, right? God is both imminent, yes. but he's also transcendent at the exact same time. This paradoxical tension within really all of Christian her not just in, in 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 the area of sexuality, but it exists here as well. Because you're right, the culture has re- because we're a reductionist culture by nature. Materialistic cultures yeah. always become this way. So sex is merely a plaything. On the other hand, That's we right. have to resist the, the this prudish notion of saying that it's not a plaything at all. God created our anatomy. There are parts of our anatomy, without taking everybody to health class here today, that exist solely or primarily for sexual gratification, particularly when it comes to the female. Why are those things there? So there's a difference between, just as there's a, there's a difference between saying I'm sola scriptura or solo scriptura, there is a difference yeah. in saying sex is primarily a plaything than, re, than reacting with, well, it's not a plaything at all. I think both of those visions are false and not Christian yeah. ethics. What do you think? No, I agree entirely. And, and take the issue of pleasure. Right. So, as you said, our culture is reductionistic. We've, redu- we've reduced the purpose of sexuality, sexual activity, to pleasure. For the Christian, pl- we don't want to deny pleasure as a part of human sexual experience, because anybody who's engaged in it knows, <laughs> knows how stunningly pleasurable it is. The point is that the pleasure is a pointer to the power and purpose of sex. That's the deal. Mm. God, think about it this way. That the pleasure is an incentive for the male and the female to reach the ultimate purpose of their union in the first place. Is that what you're saying? That's that's exactly right. It's a pointer to how seriously God takes the unitive purpose of sex, that is uniting lives, and the procreative purpose. And and as you said, let's not get into health class and anatomy here, but, but just think about it. What the uh, sexual climax is a remarkably pleasurable experience. Sexual climax is the means by which God brings forth life in fulfillment of Genesis chapter one. God, in his kindness and in his design, has connected this stunning pleasure with this amazing purpose. 
That is on purpose. That's not an accident that those two things go hand in hand. That's how seriously God takes uniting two lives in marriage and procreation. He takes them that seriously. He's that excited about them. If we're just animals, well, it takes no vulnerability for a salmon to procreate. He just has to have the will, the instinct within his created nature to swim upstream and spawn, right? Yes. Um, yes. Uh, why is there so much vulnerability? Why is there so much mystery? Why is there at times so much dysfunction, so much danger wrapped up in human sexuality? I think that actually points to the evidence we're not just animals, but we are something more. I think that's exactly right. So sex, as I see it, has two purposes, a unitive purpose to unite lives and a procreative purpose, as I've said, to bring forth life. The animal kingdom shares the second purpose, the procreative purpose, right? Animals do that. I don't think animals experience the unitive purpose, at least certainly not in the ways in which human beings made in the image of God experience it. Sex is primarily designed to unite two lives. And the fruit of that uh, and the consummation of that is the bringing forth of life, but it's primarily designed to unite two lives in the context of of marriage. Um, But it's the uniting of two lives, particularly when those lives are fallen lives, are are sinful lives, are broken people, that's where it gets very complicated, (laughs) as I think... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, we see all around us, and if we're honest, we see in our own lives that sex is a complicated thing. It's pleasurable, it's it's delightful, and when it's going well, it's it's marvelous. But it's a complicated thing because it is the uniting of two lives, and the uniting of two lives in our fallen world is hard stuff. That's difficult to do. Um, so because because of our fallenness, because of our selfishness, because of the inner curvature of the self, and and a lot of other things uh, connected to that. So that's I think where some of the mystery of uniting lives and some of the challenge lies is is it really has this this purpose of bringing two people together in a remarkably um, uh, um, deep and profound way. Todd Wilson is our guest talking about his new book here on our podcast today, Mere Sexuality, uh, here on, on the Steve Day Show podcast, courtesy of CRTV. What should the church do here, Todd, in your view? Because I, I think it's more than ethics. I think it has to be holistic, meaning... If 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 the if the moral code is preached without the meaning or the methodology of what the proper yes. context of sexuality is, we're going to lose. Okay, because as Paul writes, the man who wrote most of the New Testament spent nearly an entire chapter in arguably his most powerful epistle, Romans seven, talking about what a terrible human being he was. Because while he was writing and doing all these great things with the power of God at work in his life, he still wanted to go out and do a whole bunch of other bad things. Right? That's what we are. Yes. And so, if the church yes. does not say, therefore, don't without a but do a don't without a but do. If we just say don't, maybe in other eras where we had a fake prudishness and we had a fake Victorian ethic and we just had red light districts where we kept all this stuff private, we would get away with it. But in this era of shamelessness, in this era of I emote, therefore I am, in this era of Time Magazine has a video out literally today on Twitter warning people about a new incurable form strain of gonorrhea and, and, uh-huh. uh, and, and there's no message preached other than just get tested so you know if you have it or not, right? If, if, if all we yeah. say is don't, but without a do, 
I promise we're going to lose. We have to have a do. What what is Song of Songs really about? What 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 is what is the ex, what is a reasonable expectation level for sexual gratification in a marriage? Why does Paul say your body once you're married, your body is not your own but belongs to your spouse and it works both ways? What what do those things mean? And I think we have this weird thing where on one hand we don't want to talk about it publicly in church, but privately we all want to go home and enjoy in the in in the privacy of our own uh, you know internal reservoir reservoirs the fruit of the sexual revolution while nobody's looking. That's not going to work, Todd. No, I think that's exactly right, Steve. I don't know that I've got a silver bullet answer to your to your important question. Uh, but one of the things I do in the book, and I would, uh, which I think is probably maybe the most important thing I do in the book, is I begin the discussion not with the do's and the don'ts, or with, you might say, the law. I begin the discussion with the person of Jesus. Chapter 2 in my book is entitled, provocative title, The Sexuality of Jesus. I'm surprised you didn't ask me any questions about that. Most people <laughs> ask me questions about what's going on with that chapter what do you mean by this? Well, we live in an, Todd, we live in an era where arguably the most popular show on television, The Walking Dead, has a gay character who looks like Jesus, and that's actually his name. Uh, hmm. Well, I don't watch The Walking Dead, <laughs> so I, uh, but, but, I, but that doesn't surprise me. But to your, to your question of what do we do, how do we respond as a church, we go back to the person of Jesus. Not even primarily, or not, not exclusively, what Jesus thought and what Jesus taught about this, that, or the other issue, but who Jesus was, and I would say, particularly as it relates to sexuality, who Jesus is. The Church, when we separate Christian ethics from the person of Christ, we lose the Gospel, and we start teaching and preaching an onerous law. But to reconnect our Christian ethics with the person of Christ by reflecting on who is this Jesus and to reflect on his incarnation, what does it mean? I mean, think about it, Steve. What does it mean that God, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh, not just for 33 years, but Jesus, in his incarnation, took on human flesh, and through the resurrection, we know, continues in his embodied state. Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, is male and embodied. He is a sexual being. That is to say, he has a an, a sexed body, a male body. And to reflect on that, that's incredible, that he was born of the Virgin Mary. There's a kind of affirmation of both male and female sexuality in the incarnation of Jesus uh, uh, itself. To reflect deeply on that, and, and to find that most of, if not all of Christian, at least sexual ethics, flows, I think, naturally, organically, from a deep reflection on the person of Jesus, who he actually is, who he actually was. What about your book are you most troubled by? As a man Uh, living in a real world with real passions— with real temptations. I mean, I have a teenage daughter now and and we luckily, you know, Amy and I have always built our kids up that we can be as honest as possible with one another and we have very frank conversations and I I mean I I communicate to her that she needs to know as a teenage girl that is now 16 and has permission to date. She needs she needs to know what boys really are, what men really are, what we really struggle with. She needs to know she's dealing with young men that even if they come from 
a virtuous background. Physiologically, they are little sperm-making factories 24-7. All right? She needs to understand what she's up against. That's not to absolve them of their character, but it's for her to reaffirm her own, to understand what she's up against and do whatever she can to not put herself in a situation unnecessarily where she is vulnerable to that. But but what is it? We are you, We're guys. What When you write this, when you read it yourself as a man named Todd, what are you troubled by? Well, it's a great question. Uh, a number of things I feel like I'm troubled, or at least convicted, Steve, by uh, just about every page of the book. Because as you're talking about the positive Christian vision of sexuality, you just see how fall, how far you fall short of that in all sorts of ways. Uh, perhaps the obvious ways, and you were you were um, intimating, uh, falling short in terms of my own. Um, fidelity and integrity, personal integrity. I'm not talking about crazy stuff. I'm just talking about a heart and mind that is ravished by the beauty of the gospel. And and uh, um, uh, and so, so recognizing that I am a fallen human being, and a fallen male for that matter, uh, and, and living with the burden of that, and um, seeing that in light of God's beautiful vision for sexuality, that's humbling to me, that's convicting to me. I would also say, though, that I tried to frame the book in very positive terms, that this is something that we ought to celebrate and sing about and commend in our culture. And there's a bit of, um, uh, I, I don't know, disappointment on my part that I haven't cast vision for this this picture of human sexuality with greater joy and hopefulness um, in my own church setting, in my own family, in my own relationships. The Christian vision of sexuality isn't something to be bashful about or even to... to um, as the first word, provide an apologetic for, as though, Steve, you know, we have to be defensive for it. Hmm. Rather, rather, it's something stunningly beautiful that is so countercultural, but so compelling. I feel like I haven't done as good a job of joyfully speaking about that and, and providing hope to a culture that really has a kind of deep nihilism and, and hopelessness about human sexuality. Um, so that's where I also feel convicted, to be honest with you. Finally, Todd, the subject matter of your book is the epicenter of America's culture war, essentially. Yes, yes. Uh, from a public policy standpoint, you know, and yes. I remember growing up and I did not grow up in a Christian home, but I remember growing up when I was little and my parents would watch on, you know, Dallas and those shows. And, you know, I didn't really understand what was going on. But, you know, later on when they told me the birds and the bees, then I went back, reverse engineered, did the math and figured out J.R. Ewing was waking up the next morning with a woman that wasn't his wife most episodes. Right. So I've kind of did the math yeah. on that. But I never went to school during the 70s and 80s and was and was literally indoctrinated into you need to become an adulterer when you become an adult. And yes. we live in an era now where so many we're, we're telling kids, if, if you're struggling with your sexuality, you notice somebody of the same gender um, and you're fascinated by where they're at sexually in the locker room after gym class, that must mean you're same sex attracted. So we go from zero to 60 right away. If, you, if, if, right. if you're a tomboy at 14, it must mean you were really meant to be a boy. So there, there's, there's no it's odd that those who believe in evolution don't want to give human nature time to evolve. We want to right away jump right to the most drastic conclusion. And so there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of politicization of this. Um, and, And we live in an era now where 
no, there wasn't an adultery lobby in the 70s and 80s as we were as we were making adultery and cohabitation mainstream like there is for same-sex attraction or gender confusion and things of that nature. And I think a real challenge that we have, and I say this as someone that does political activism for a living, so I'm speaking for myself as a believer. The real challenge is how to confront this on a public policy level without surrendering my own God-given rights. But at the same time, not driving away people that Jesus died for at the exact same time. And I'm not exactly sure how to navigate that road, brother. What do you think? Well, it's a great question. That's a, it's a really great question. I think it's important. Um, I, I used the phrase earlier in our discussion, the rational coherence of the Christian vision. Sounds like a big phrase. Uh, I hope your listeners will immediately know what that means. But my point is... Christians need to recover the historic Christian vision of human sexuality and see the rational coherence of it. How sex relates to marriage, relates to bodies, relates to babies, and all of the rest of it. Not piecemeal, but as a coherent theological whole. Uh, If we're going to commend the Christian vision in the culture, and check it out, not be viewed as simply bigoted. If all we've got is the Bible says so, mm-hmm. right? We won't be able to commend the Christian vision and culture like I think we should try to do. We need to be able to understand and then articulate its coherence, its theological and its rational coherence, how these things fit together so that people in the culture don't see us as simply bigoted, but we're actually rooting this vision in biology. What we're talking about is the importance of bodies and human sexuality, and all of the rest of it. Um, and I, so I, I, that, that's not an answer to everything by any means, but it's just a way of saying, I think, a lot of Christians are running around, and they don't know they don't know why they really oppose same-sex marriage, other than the Bible talks about it maybe in a couple of places. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't, I'm not trying to downplay the authority of the Bible. I'm just trying to upplay everything else the Christian tradition and faith says about why marriage is between one man and a one woman. Why is that? I, uh, the other thing that uh, one of the surprises, if you ask me, one of the what was one of the surprises in doing research for this book, one of the surprises is when I developed a chapter on marriage. Um, you might say in all the debates that have gone on at the policy level in the United States about marriage, same-sex marriage, and 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 and, and the debates surrounding that, you might say, well, we've got a big divide in our culture and our society about what marriage is. What I discovered in researching and preparing the chapter on marriage is, no, that's not the case at all. Actually, just about everybody, as best as I can tell, agrees on what the definition of marriage is. The problem is it's a wrong definition of marriage. What I mean by that is I think most people in our culture, certainly non-Christians, but then it seems to me most Christians have what you might call a companionate view of marriage, which is marriage is a formal commitment between two people that are really into each other. Right, strong emotional attachment that you formalize in a covenant called marriage. It's a definition of marriage that has nothing to do with your body. That's the amazing thing, nothing to do with your body. If you have a definition of marriage that has nothing to do with your body and with male and female as bodily differences, you have no rational reason to resist or to push back on same-sex marriage. Hmm. You see how the logic on that falls follows. Right. If mar- if marriage is just 
formalizing a commitment you have with your number one person or your best friend or someone you really have a strong emotional attachment to, what is keeping two people of the same sex from getting married? There is no rational basis for resisting. Meaning that. if this is merely, a, if it's merely a, a materialistic transaction for the husband and the wife, then what is the basis for denying that materialistic transaction for anyone else? Yeah, that's exactly right. If you if you on your wedding day, even as a Christian, if you're on your wedding day, only think about and hear about like you're, you're you've got such an emotional and even a spiritual union with another person, and that's what your marriage is. Your marriage is an emotional and spiritual union, and you don't include in that definition understanding bodily union, bodily union. You have no reason, rational basis for denying or resisting same sex marriage, mm. because that's all two people of the same sex are saying. They're saying, hey. We have a very strong emotional attachment, just like you Christians do. We want to we want to commit our lives to each other, just like you Christians do. So, what's the big deal? Why are you being so bigoted and excluding and singling out us? Because well, we're we, we in, in this in this materialistic argument, we would come back with these aren't relationships that can produce children, which is one of the primary functions of a marriage, which they would then counter with. Because I've had all these debates; it's what I do for a living. Their counter to that would be: so you don't tell uh, two fifty-seven-year-old widows they can't marry; then they, they're beyond childbearing age. What's what's going on there? That that goes to what you're saying. If we don't, if if we're not advocating for the metaphysical aspects. Of, of what marriage is as a union. What it, why, why the Hebrew word for one there is the same Moses, is, Moses uses in the Shema, for example. If we don't make the argument for that, then we don't have an argument. That's really what you're saying. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I wouldn't locate it primarily in procreation. I wouldn't say because you can't, because same-sex relationships are necessarily infertile. I wouldn't go there in the first instance for the reasons you get a lot of pushback on that argument when you make that. I, I would go primarily to bodies matter. The Bible and his, and the West, and certainly Christianity, has talked about marriage as a one flesh union. And the flesh is not, is, is not just a, is, is, is meant to be understood very concretely, very, very bodily. What is, Steve, the consummation of a marriage in Western tradition and civil law? When is a marriage consummated? It's consummated when a husband and wife have intercourse. Mm-hmm. That is when the one flesh union becomes, as it were, the one flesh. There are two fleshes coming together in a single biological bodily function. That is the, is the um, essence of marriage right there. And that is why the Christian tradition and the Western tradition, until very re- recently, has always insisted is between one man and one woman. That's not bigotry because we're just we just like heterosexual relationships. It's because only a man and a woman can bring together two body parts into one flesh union that has a function of uniting and procreating. Hmm. That's the logic of the Christian vision. That's what we need to recover. That was well said. I knew there was a reason we had you on today, man. That was well said. (laughs) (laughs) Todd Wilson's the author of the book, Mere Sexuality, available now, Amazon and everywhere else. Todd, it's good to have you with us today. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me, Steve. All the best to you. All right. God bless. Let's get some quick reaction as we wrap it up uh, to what we just heard from uh, from Dr. Wilson. Todd, what do you think? There's no way uh, to avoid us making the pitch the way 
we would need to make it in not being called uh, bigots. There's just no way around that. We are going to have to bear our cross on that front. And I see our children, quite frankly, uh, I see uh, them clandestinely uh, getting married, uh, akin to in um, Braveheart to avoid uh, uh, prima nocte. Really, I think it's going to get that bad because you know, the, you, the making a cosmological argument, which is the proper one to make, pulling past the emotion, putting this thing at the center of the universe as sacrament, that is what it is. Uh, we, we've, we've already seen that the favorite playthings of the left, science, for example, they're easily cast aside whenever they want. They don't even believe in that. Uh, so... We have a lot of things on our side. We have the science, we have the cosmology, uh, but it none of it is going to matter in the end. So we just must do as we must, and the outcomes are going to have to be for God. Well, in the last three minutes, I just learned what prima nocta was. That's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, this is this is uh, this is something that especially my generation has to develop, and at some point, um, I, I think. There will be some who will just be completely sexually exhausted, and that will be the opportunity for for this type of message to fill that void in in people's lives. We have um, every sort of opportunity and avenue to uh, be gratified sexually, but just with uh, just with the body. There there is something more there, and I think. That message needs to be propagated to my generation, really every generation uh, since uh, since that's come since the uh, the '60s. Um, this is this is again an opportunity I see more than a cross to bear. That I mean, yes, that's true, but there's there's always going to be our crosses to bear. This this is a message I think that needs to be uh, to spread more, and the church can't be the church can't be. Uh, embarrassed about this. This needs to be talked about more openly like we just did. I want to thank Dr. Wilson for joining us today here on the podcast. Good commentary to close us out here today, gentlemen. Don't forget CRTV.com, promo code DACE if you want to watch today's television show. Don't miss that. And all of the shows here at CRTV, CRTV are available to you with that promo code DACE as well. Back at it again tomorrow with Feedback Friday and the DACE Group Roundtable. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. I like you.